This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.24 in Armstrong's Footsteps, and we're your hosts. I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and this week I go first. And I'm Tom a lifelong Gundam fan, and I say Moar because Mawa sounds too much like the old priest from The Princess Bride saying Mawage. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 260 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Chen Quan T, Joe M, The Staffer, and Melissa S. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 23, Moon Attack. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers religion, Japanese youth, and Japanese home shrines, and a good old-fashioned Gundam names roundup. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last week. Welcome back to TNN Studios in the heart of downtown New York City. I'm Lieutenant Tom Thompson. The holidays are upon us once again, and that means it is the best time of the year to join the Big Titans, Little Titans mentorship program and participate in Take a Teen, Leave a Teen 87, the annual Earth Sphere-wide subordinate recruitment day. Bring home your new wingman, scapegoat, or lackey today. Whether you're looking for an insubordinate ensign with crippling headaches, a sassy chief petty officer, or even a junior lieutenant with a troubled past, Big Titans, Little Titans has who you need to fill out your unit. Plus, when you recruit a subordinate during Take a Teen, Leave a Teen, we'll guarantee that they already have all their shots. And each of our certified Lil Titans comes pre-orphaned to ensure that you can be the surrogate parent they crave. Just listen to this testimonial from a satisfied Big Titans, Little Titans mentor. He asked to remain anonymous, so we'll just call him Paptimus S. When I returned to the Earth Sphere, I discovered that the soldiers of the Federation had become timid and corrupt. I worried that I would never find anyone in this decadent world willing to dedicate their body and soul to my cause, respecting and loving me as one can only ever love the astral god or his living prophet. Then I discovered teenagers, and like the shining prince of long ages past, I realized that I could simply mold these wild but passionate children into the tools I required, discarding any who failed me. I would absolutely recommend Take a Teen, Leave a Teen to all who follow in my footsteps. And what better way to deploy your Lil Titan than in a brand new Marasai from Take a Teen, Leave a Teen sponsor, Anaheim Electronics. Let's check out its many teen-friendly features. 
With durable Gundarium alloy armor, you won't need to worry about your teen damaging their mobile suit when they steal it out of the hangar, even though they haven't finished simulator training yet. Teens love speed. That's a scientifically proven fact. And so they'll love the Marisai's upgraded Minovsky ultra-compact fusion reactor with output as high as 1800 kilowatts. Worried about your teen being pulled in by Earth's gravity? Be sure to splurge for the fully equipped Marisai EXT with integrated balut system. For more information about teen-friendly mobile suits, just go to anaheim.electronics.titans.littletitans.myearth.fed forward slash teens. And now the recap for Moon Attack. It has finally become clear what the Titans are up to. They are preparing to attack Von Braun City, the moon's largest, built around the footsteps of Captain Armstrong. It is said that whoever controls Von Braun City controls outer space, and Ayug will do everything possible to prevent it falling into Titan's hands. The Radish sends Quattro, Cats, and a transport full of supplies to the Argama, and on the Argama the crew prepare. Emma is startled to find Camille deep cleaning his room, but he explains that if he dies in battle, he doesn't want anyone to have to clean up after him. It would be embarrassing. She scolds him for cleaning when he should be prepping the Zeta Gundam, but still helps him finish up. Captained by Jamaican, the Alexandria is the flagship for Operation Apollo, but Sirocco will have command during the battle. Jamaican plans to use Sirocco's ship, the Dogos Gear, as a shield. The operation begins with warning shots fired from the Titan's fleet into the outskirts of Von Braun City. AU pilots scramble to their mobile suits. There aren't enough suits for all of the pilots. Distracted by Katz's attempt to grab one, Rekawa loses track of Fa, who promptly jumps into the Methus and takes off. Out in space, staring down enemy fire, Fa panics. Her breath is shallow and fast. She freezes, trying to pull herself together. She is grappling with an enemy mobile suit, its beam saber raised to strike her down, when Camille shoots its sword hand clean off. Fa fires twice, destroying the Titan's suit. Jared is one of the first Titan's pilots to sortie, and as he shoots down older Ayuk suits, he thinks to himself that old types should stay in the background. Sirocco is using Jared as a decoy. While Ayug is occupied with other Titan's ships and the mobile suits, Dogos Gear descends, positioning itself directly above Von Braun City. As the Dogos Gear passes, Camille, Jared, and Quattro all feel Sirocco's aura, like a sickly green pall that seems to engulf everything they can see. Once in position, Sirocco is able to take the entire city hostage. If Ayug attacks, he will bomb Von Braun City into oblivion. Unwilling to risk an entire city full of civilians, Ayug retreats to fight another day. Jamaican is furious, slapping Sirocco and demanding to know what he would have done if Ayug had called his bluff, but Sirocco seems unperturbed, smiling his usual enigmatic smile as he apologizes and cedes control of the city to Jamaican. Jared is injured, having risked his life for a chance to defeat Camille. Moara rescued him and hovers over him as his stretcher is carried away. And Fa collapses to the floor of the hangar, hugging her knees to her chest and crying. Camille tries to tell her that she did well, but she refuses to be comforted or consoled. The adrenaline and emotion of the fight have overwhelmed her, and he leaves her in the capable care of Rekoa and Emma.
Wow, is there ever a lot to talk about with this episode. But let's start by saying Hisashiburi, it's been a while, for our old friend Jamaican and his reanimated corpse of a second in command. Indeed. The Titans are back in some semblance of force. This sounds like it might be the bulk of the Titans' forces in space. It's not actually a lot, all things considered. Four or five ships, two dozen mobile suits. Seeing the Titans in action in this episode, for me at least, changes the way you think about them. Because we've had the sense so far from the way we've seen them at grips and on Earth that the Titans are like a legitimate authority of the Earth Federation and that they kind of run the show. But here they're conducting an armed takeover of a major city. This makes them feel more like a rebel group. This is not merely the story of the Ayug rebels against the authoritarian Titans, but the story of two different factions within the Federation that are both, in the grand scheme of things, pretty small, fighting over who gets to call the shots for the Federation. And as the ending narration points out, whoever controls Von Braun City controls space, which made me think of historical parallels to that kind of idea, because there have been a ton of cities throughout modern history that hold that kind of a position because of their geographic location, because of their uh, political or economic significance. Cities like Singapore. Gibraltar. It made me think specifically about the conflict in the 1950s between Egypt and the British Empire over control of the Suez Canal. Which, if I remember correctly, was a very brief conflict that went disastrously for the empire. I don't know much more about it. <laughs> I know what I saw on The Crown. <laughs> uh, further research may be required. That was a period of time where the threat of the collapse of the empire really frightened a lot of politicians who were involved in the, the British government. They were desperate to keep the empire intact. They did not succeed because there's only so much of the tide of history you could fight. But the Suez Canal is a good analog for Von Braun because... While I don't think you should compare Ayug to the British Empire for the most part, nonetheless, Ayug and Karaba together do have presences both in space and on Earth, and being able to communicate between those two and transport materials between the two is vital for the success of their little rebellion. And for the British Empire, the Suez Canal was the vital link between the Mediterranean and therefore the Atlantic, and the Indian Ocean, the Pacific... Speaking of the Titans, we get a couple of glimpses in this episode to the politics in both of these groups. That Ayug is trying to create a perception that they are divided in some way. Ayug is trying to create a perception of weakness in the hopes that it will help them. The Titans actually are divided. <laughs> we see Jamaican sort of throwing Sirocco in, like, oh, he is going to lead the battle. His ship is going to serve as a shield for the Alexandria. Sirocco very sneakily takes the city in a way that everyone assumes is for his own personal like aggrandizement. They assume he's doing it so he can be the one who captured Von Braun and so he can look good. But then the minute Jamaican shows up, he cedes control of the city to Jamaican. He's like, oh, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I can't be held responsible for a whole city. You should run it. <laughs> Sirocco has an aside to himself that, oh, it's, it's really hard playing this role I've been given. And I don't know if he means that in a sort of broad theoretical sense of he has an idea in his head of what's happening, almost like it's a play and he has a role in it that's instrumental to things going the way he wants them to go. Or has he actually been given orders 
Hmm. by someone further up that like i need you to do x y and z hmm. and with sirocco it could be either yeah <laughs> no one seems to trust him he has a personality that makes him very difficult to get along with he acts as if everything is always going according to some plan that he is aware of for instance when they're doing their briefing and he mentions Siddeley's death, he says Siddeley died because they weren't strong enough. Right, Jared? And Jared bristles <laughs> at this. Jared doesn't think that's true. And Jared holds himself responsible for Siddeley's death. And I imagine most soldiers would bristle at one of their comrades who has died being like a bad mouthed after the fact. Uh, and so, you know, he says Siddeley fought very well. And then he he doesn't quite storm out of the room, but he leaves very abruptly and he has not been dismissed. I was wondering about that line when Sirocco says Silly didn't have the skills necessary to survive. It makes Sirocco sound like a social Darwinist or something, like he has a kind of only the strong will survive. That's kind of been his attitude all along, though. Like every time he lets Jared do something dangerous but withholds help. It's like, well, if Jared is going to make dangerous decisions, if he can survive them, that's fine. I don't care. Well, and then after Jared leaves, Moar goes as if she's going to like comfort him or speak to him. And Soroko says, no, no, we're done. And he left because he understands what's expected of him. <laughs> Not because he didn't want to listen to me badmouth his subordinates anymore. Like he has this uh, secret understanding of everything that's happening. And his emphasis on only a genius will be able to lead the people after the war. Altogether, it makes him reminiscent of Girin a bit, with his idea that only a chosen few will be able to live on in the aftermath. Although I suspect that Sirocco's criteria for survival might be different from Girin's. And we see perhaps some of the same callousness in the fact that his quote-unquote warning shots I think of warning shots as not actually hitting anything, as something that goes past the thing. They fire on Von Braun City, they just fire on the outskirts of the city, not the central part. Right. Fire your warning shots at the suburbs. Basically. And you can see that at the end of the episode when they show you Von Braun, there are craters everywhere. Occupied portions of the city have, in fact, been destroyed in the battle. Because they don't actually care about protecting human lives or protecting civilians. They just want to leave the infrastructure of the city intact because they're going to use it as their own base. And the sheer fact that he is willing to threaten an entire city. And Jamaican asks him, like, what would you have done? Would you have blown up the whole city if Ayug didn't call off their attack? And Sirocco doesn't answer, but... One gets the impression he would not have hesitated to cause some serious destruction. Or he knew it would never be an issue. Maybe he understood the leaders of Ayug well enough to know that they wouldn't. Because if there's one thing this episode makes clear, it is that Sirocco is a massively powerful new type. When he and the Dogos gear charge forward, the impression they make on the battlefield is orders of magnitude greater than we've seen from any previous new type. Everyone on the battlefield can feel it. Even Jared, who until this moment we didn't really have any good evidence was a new type, is overwhelmed by the unpleasantness of this feeling coming off of Sirocco. Yeah, Camille, Jared, and Quattro all feel Sirocco pass. They do a really incredible visual they change the color, but they don't just change the color of the frame. The background becomes this sort of green marbled 
looking background, which to me feels sickly, doesn't mm. it? Like it's the the green and the splotchiness. It it feels wrong.、Mm-hmm. It does. It also feels cool and collected, and not exactly calm, but some emotion in the calm spectrum. In a way that often, when new types are having those moments in combat, it's very bright and vivid and angry energy. Sroko is ice cold. Yeah, there's a sense of control about it, like frozen poison. And normally, when we get those visuals with the new types, it's either just the character, often just their head and face, or it's just the two mobile suits. But here with Sroko, it's. The whole Dogo's gear, and the camera kind of pulls back, and we see a huge portion of space, all enshrouded in Sirocco's aura. And I think that's very intentional. It's a way to demonstrate the vastness of that presence. That for most of these new types, that's a thing that they feel on a very close interpersonal level, and yet here is an aura that seems to fill up all of space. <laughs> As far as they can sense, as far as they can see. In the podcast before, I've talked about how for some new types it feels more receptive, and for some new types it feels more sort of projective. And I've talked about how Shar and Quattro often don't seem to be affected as much emotionally by others as, say, an Amuro or a Camille is. But if you want someone who's not affected by others at all, it's Sirocco. He can see and perceive and understand, and he can project himself out into the universe. But there's no indication that any of what he's feeling is touching him. Which brings me to Jared, in a way. Ooh, I、uh, felt so bad for Jared by the end of this episode. Well, the bit that most ties to Sirocco is that Jared is being used as a decoy. Jared knows he's being used as a decoy. He figures that out very quickly. So he's, you know, he's pretty smart, dude.、Um, he tells Moar he is happy to have been a decoy if it was useful. That if he could be of use, that's all. That's all he wanted. Jared is so desperate for approval from any authority figure that in this case he's just going to invent a version of Sirocco who approves of him. Well, by a lot of standards, he is a better soldier now. He's a more mature soldier now. He's certainly more useful.、Uh, is that a disagreement? Absolutely not. <laughs> Jared went from being a total pain to have as a soldier because he was constantly doing things without orders and failing at them,、uh, to being somewhat compliant and willing to go along with things. In fact, Moar seems to be the only one on that ship who still maintains a principled objection to Sirocco's influence. And she is deeply suspicious of Sarah. Which I'm not sure is strictly speaking fair. Sarah is very young; she only just arrived. It does seem like a lot of Moar's suspicion is based in that youth. Like, what is someone so young doing here? And possibly a suspicion of new types. Hmm. <laughs> Because she she thinks to herself, "I bet that girl knows what Sirocco's real plans are." If Sarah's not already Sirocco's favorite, she really wants to be. He's good at that. I get kind of a teacher's pet vibe from her in that briefing room scene. See, I don't, I don't get a teacher's pet vibe. I get a、uh, horribly abused young person who would like not to be abused anymore. Please, vibe. You say tomato. <laughs> She argues with Jared, right? 
Perhaps she can sense on some level that Jared is not really going to hurt her and that she's allowed, that Jared will permit her to argue with him. Sirocco has established very clearly that she's going to do what he wants or else. And so uh, when he asks her, describe the mission, she is going to hop to. Absolutely. But she's just so thorough. And then she seems kind of taken aback when he tells her not to say anything else. She prepared so hard. She wants to impress him so much with all of her knowledges. It could be a little bit of both. It could. It makes me wonder about the situation that she was raised in. Mm. Yeah, we've yet to meet a Titan's new type who is okay. The fact that she seems the most okay doesn't mean she is. Yeah, we know she's a new type candidate. We don't know whether or not she's from one of the new type labs. Apparently they don't make any young boy new types. That's not a thing. <laughs> For some reason, the Titans only make young girl new types. Young boy new types join AUG. That's just puberty. There were two other things that struck me about Jared in this episode that have less to do with Sirocco. Uh, the first was when his unit comes out and is fighting older mobile suits, and he says old types should stay in the background. And it reminded me of nothing so much as a couple of lines from the song, The Times They Are Changin'. Like there's a line about uh, get out of the way if you can't lend a hand. And it's very much like, hey, older generation, if you can't contribute to this thing, maybe don't show up. See, it reminded me of Shar from First Gundam, who was the paragon of old types should just get out of the way. The future belongs to new types. And coincidentally, the moment Jared says that, he gets attacked by Quattro, who has some kind of connection to Shar. Not clear on what that is. <laughs> The other thing that becomes perhaps its most obvious in this episode, though it's been hinted at plenty, is that Jared is absolutely willing to die if he can take Camille with him. Oh, yeah. He gets so mad at Moar for rescuing him. And she's like, you would have died. And he's like, but I would have killed Camille. I would have died satisfied. Right. He doesn't say, no, I wouldn't have. He admits tacitly that, yes, he would have died, but he would have taken out his rival. His rival. And perhaps that's part of why Jared has become somewhat more compliant with Sirocco that like with Sirocco, he keeps having these opportunities to fight Camille and the Argama. And he's got this cool new mobile suit. And so maybe he feels like this is the place that will let him get his revenge. Hey, that's almost exactly the offer that Sirocco made to Moar. If you want to be able to achieve your ambitions, follow my orders. Join up with me. I can make it all happen. Maybe you can help me figure this out. One of the first moments that we get with the Aeung side of things in this episode is Kat being very excited that they are returning to the Argama. They being him and Quattro and some other people. And, uh... A bunch of supplies and things. They're on the radish right now. Quattro asks if Katz is excited, and Katz says something like, The Argama is similar to the white base, isn't it? And I'm like, um, is it? <laughs> I don't get any of the sense of camaraderie from the Argama that I got from the white base. Not at all. I mostly would have agreed with that until this episode. And it feels a little disjointed because it comes out of nowhere and then it doesn't really connect to what happens later in the episode. But that scene with Camille cleaning his room and Emma stumbling upon him and helping him clean his room and then Fa sort of poking her head around the corner and then hiding. That all felt very white basey. 
In fact, it felt extremely reminiscent of a particular scene from First Gundam when Amuro has to help fix the sink in the bathroom and walks in on Mirai naked and like hits his head on her bra in the doorway, just like Emma <laughs> bumping into Camille's uh, briefs hanging from his clothesline. Okay, there are fits and starts. Some of the women comforting Fa at the end. There are moments, but I don't think it really ever quite comes close. Because fundamentally, the white base didn't feel like the military. They all put on uniforms and they all took ranks, and it, but it never quite felt that rigid. Sure. And they were all, almost all of them, more or less the same age. They were more peers than they were hierarchical. And, and they were young. Like, it's just different. You're right. And Katz is wrong. <laughs> I don't think that can be denied. The question is, does the show know that Katz is wrong? I think it does. I think the show draws attention to this moment to tell us something about Katz. I'm not certain whether that is that Katz has this idea that was built up in the time since the war, right? Like in his time since he left the white base, that the white base was some kind of incubator for new types and really powerful, important people. And he wants, he may feel as if he kind of missed the boat on that. He was a little too young to be part of that the first time around. Oh, see, I don't think it's about that at all. Well, so here's, here's my other theory. I have lots of theories. And my other theory is simply that he has fond memories of his time on the white base, and he would really like to live something like that again. I think that's it. I think for cats, the white base was probably like the most exciting, but also the most familial, connected experience of his life, and he wants to go back to that. I do think, though, that Quattro thinks of the white base as an incubator for new types. I think Quattro is consciously trying to recreate the white base with the Argama. Like the creators of the show, he's trying <laughs> to bring that magic back, but like, say, the sponsors of the show, he doesn't really understand it. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a machine for selling gunplay, right? Right. If we just have the right mix of, like, emotional young woman, sassy, hard young woman, angry boy, kind boy, like, if we just hit the right mix, then... It'll every... produce infinite new types or infinite money. Everyone will love it and we'll have another smash hit on our hands. Yeah, not that I think Katz had an unhappy home life with Fra and Hayato, but it certainly would have been much calmer... And there's a difference between, I mean, they basically lived in a large house with a huge extended family for a year. And then suddenly it was just their nuclear family. And so it would have felt like a bit of a loss to not have around, uh, as we put it in one of our previous episodes, all of Kika and Kat's and Letza's Onisan Tachi, all their big brothers. And who did not reach 14 or 15 and feel a bit of nostalgia for those carefree days of youth? when all you had to worry about was getting blown up by Xeon. I actually think 1415 is when that clear sense of purpose becomes very attractive. Hmm. You know, everyone is starting to ask you questions and tell you things that have to do with like, what are you going to do with the entire rest of your life? What are you going to do next? What decisions are you going to make? And you feel at sea. You don't know how to make any of those decisions. You have very strong feelings all the time, but about what and in what way <laughs> changes constantly. I imagine he is also nostalgic for the sense of purpose when they were on the white base. Probably, yeah. 
You brought up the scene where Camille's cleaning. I really love this scene because Emma, of course, immediately gets on his case because that's what Emma does. Emma is just constantly on him. <laughs> she is just constantly nagging at him in one way or another. Uh, but she does help him. She scolds him, but she immediately goes to help him. And you just know watching this scene that if Emma had walked into his room and it was messy, she would have scolded him for not cleaning it. He can't really win with her. But there is the darkness underneath the scene where Camille says, I might die. Like he's cleaning because he doesn't want somebody to have to clean out his room after he's passed away and be like, wow, Camille was a slob. <laughs> he didn't clean the corners. Huh. He also uses a phrase that I am entirely unfamiliar with, but that I assume is some kind of idiom. Uh, the birds will laugh at me. If I leave my room a mess, the birds will laugh at me. Yeah, I wondered about that. It was something like, uh, So I will be looking into that because that's a very humorous saying. And Emma takes the opportunity to ask him whether he's still moping about his parents' deaths. And he says, no, mostly I think about the people I've killed. And he has a little shrine over his bed. It's built into the, the structure of the beds, so every room probably has one. And I assume they're meant to be like household shrines in Japan, which are very common. And he has a cup of water there. And he opens it briefly and then closes it again. The interesting aspect of that for me is that he says he's not religious, but he still has and uses the shrine. Right, he still prays for the souls of those he's killed. And he and Emma both acknowledge that they are not religious, that religion doesn't do anything for people who are already dead. But at the same time, there's this need to, to channel those feelings in some way and that prayer is maybe the best way that they have to do that. I won't say regret and even remorse feels wrong. But there is a sense, you know, how many times has Camille yelled at someone, if you weren't here, I wouldn't have to kill you. Like, he doesn't want to kill people. And so he, he certainly feels like that's a waste. Like those lives should still be out there being lived and needs some way to channel those feelings that even though he's not religious, has become prayer of a sort, mm -hmm. ceremony. Taken together with what he said to Fa last episode about... Like there needs to be some person, some place that is untouched by this war. And I was hoping you were going to be one of those people. This makes Camille seem like maybe he feels that he's been corrupted by the war and by what he's had to do. That he can't forget or move past the people that he's killed and the things that he's done. And then he does have a videotape for Torres. <laughs> yeah, it feels silly, but what it does is illustrate for us that he does have a, a positive relationship with the crew, that after his long absence, some of the conflict there has, has been ameliorated, has dissipated. They're back to being a more cohesive group. He is bonding with people in a way that he certainly wasn't early on, and we wondered about that. You know, the fact that he refused to be one of them mm -hmm. was a point of conflict, and now he's clearly more part of the group. And not in a passive way. He's making the effort. I did have a moment of deep frustration with him. Are you're, we going to have to talk about that now? You're all going to know. <laughs> you all probably know what it is if you uh, have watched the episode recently. Camille looks up at one point in the hangar and is like, gosh, there are a lot of women here. <laughs> you know, Rekua, Emma, Fa, on the battlefield, Rosamia, Lila, uh, Four. A lot of women sure are coming out to the front lines of the battlefield that belongs to men. Says it's the men's battlefield, that the presence of women in it is abnormal. 
he thinks to himself that the world is changing. And what really makes it for me in terms of like clearly he's being a jerk about this is when he thinks the world is changing, the camera zooms in on his face and he scowls. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't he's not happy about he, that. He like knits his brow. Yep. The world is changing. Harumph. <laughs> Ugh. Okay. Yes. Ugh. I'm not going to defend Camille. No. <laughs> no. It's a pretty terrible thing for him to say. And I do think it reflects some underlying misogyny. We've noted that about Camille before. However, I am going to add a little bit of nuance, because I do think there's more going on here than just Camille doesn't think women belong on the battlefield. Because Camille is not Slager. Camille is not Quattro. Camille doesn't actually like being on the battlefield. He doesn't think it's a good thing. It doesn't complete him. So it's not like he resents the arrival of women displacing men from their proper place at the heart of the battlefield. Camille doesn't think anybody should be on the battlefield. Right. But there is also something toxic in the idea that, oh, women are too good and sweet and pure, and they shouldn't be corrupted by these horrible things that men have to endure. I agree. Um, However... <laughs> There is a difference between saying women are too good and too sweet and too pure by their natures mm -hmm. for the battlefield, and so they shouldn't be out here, versus thanks to the toxic masculine system that we live in, women have had the privilege of not having to go onto the battlefield and therefore have not been corrupted by it, and maybe it would be better if they weren't. I don't think Camille has the self-awareness to have that second one. From my perspective, there's just also elements of... Camille finds women difficult. He doesn't know how to talk to them. He finds them a distraction. And he resents their presence on that basis. Not that they displace him, but that he doesn't really want to be around them. <laughs> hmm. See, I think Camille doesn't really want to be around men either. Well, he doesn't really want to be around anyone, but... <laughs> but the people that Camille actually like seeks out, spends time with, and develops relationships with tend to be women when they're available. They're also the people he has arguments with, the people who make him feel bad, the people who are hardest on him most of the time in the absence of Quattro. Like it's perhaps a deeply ambivalent relationship with women, but that is also complicated. Oh, absolutely. But remember that Camille's whole thing, as he very clearly laid out for four, is this need to perform masculinity. And when he's in a space with other men, he's constantly competing to be the most masculine, or at least sufficiently masculine. I don't think that's just when he's around men, though. I don't think he performs that any less in front of Rekua, Emma, or Fa. But see, with Rekua, Emma, and Fa, with women, theoretically, in Camille's mind, it should be easy to be the most masculine. But, it should be by default. But it's not. Right. That's, but see, that's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's that's why, why he's so upset about this. That's why he doesn't want women around. Oh, it was like we were disagreeing, but actually we were agreeing the whole time. And you know what the worst part about this for him is? What? All of these things he's done in order to prove his masculinity, it might turn out that those aren't masculine things at all. They're right. just things. All these women can also do those things. So does that mean that piloting mobile suits doesn't make him a man? <gasps> then how does he prove he's a man? How does he know he's a man? Beats me. I think it's really, really uncool of Fa and Emma and Rekua to ruin Camille's life this way. <laughs> Hashtag not all Camille's. <laughs> Despite my frustration, he does seem to demonstrate a little growth because he goes from being resentful 
And his resentment comes at a moment where he realizes that Reko and Emma are training Fa. Fa's not coming to him or to some other man on the crew with questions about piloting. She has these mentors who are women to help her. Ugh, there's so many women here that I saw two of them over there and it wasn't even all of them. I got one of them wrong. (laughs) (laughs) To then, at the end of the episode, recognizing that he can't really comfort Fa. She's coming down off of the adrenaline of the fight really hard. It made me think of my, uh, I do karate. And the minute my black belt test was over, I just started weeping uncontrolled. Like, like I just couldn't stop crying. And most of that was adrenaline. I had taken some hits during the sparring, but I wasn't in, I wasn't injured. I wasn't really in pain at that point. But the adrenaline of the test had been so intense that the minute it was over, I just couldn't stop crying. Uh, and I imagine some of you have had similarly intense experiences that involve adrenaline. He's able to see Fa in that state, to recognize it, to empathize with it, but also to recognize that he can't comfort her right now. And so to like leave her to process with her mentors who he thinks are probably better able to like help her deal with those feelings. And who don't have the specific relationship with Fa that makes it so difficult for her and Camille to be around each other. Their tiff continues into this episode, and it's clear that it's not just one-sided. Neither one of them knows how to deal with their feelings about the other one. The episode does make it very clear, though, that Camille is thinking about Fa a lot. Well, let's talk about Fa in this episode. It looks like she's shown up to talk to Camille, but then once Emma arrives, she decides not to. She then pretends she wasn't there to talk to him at all, she was there to talk to Emma. Then they both stand there awkwardly, and she says uh, something about Astonaji being mad. What was that about? Do you know? I suspect that it was because she got one of the Rikdias's legs blown off in the last combat. Mm. There's been some mention in other episodes about the mechanics being either angry or pleased, depending on the condition of the mobile <laughs> suit when it returns. You know, Rekoa, go apologize to the mechanics for the damage to the Methos. Right. But that's all she says to him. Before taking off. Well, because his response is very much like, eh, whatever. He doesn't say whatever, but it's that same, like, when he was like, Roger, earlier. Mm. It's very matter of fact, and it's not like, oh. Sorry. That sucks. (laughs) So she gives him a little, and strides away. And she uh, Camille's a mobile suit again. (laughs) This is a great scene, um, because what allows her to Camille the mobile suit is the subsequent arrivals of Camille and then Katz distracting everybody as Katz tries to Camille a mobile suit. Well, because Rekoa has hands on her. Rekoa is there to stop her. And then everything gets chaotic and Fa is like, whoosh, (laughs) to the cockpit of the Methus. So one thing I noticed both in the previous episode and in this one is the way everyone is very physical in the way they interact with Fa specifically. You don't get that with a lot of other characters, but mm-hmm. you get Camille, hand on arm, hand on shoulder, Rekoa here, one hand on each each shoulder. And then in the combat, in their mobile suits, they're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Usually when we see like a mobile suit doing a, a touch connection for the comms, it's like fingertips or hands touching or hand touching thigh. Right, with- it's sort of whatever's in reach as they're flying. But with Fa, it's very much like body-to-body, hand-to-shoulder. It feels very grabby. And the last time we saw mobile suits grabbing and restraining each other like that, it was the beginning of the show, and they were doing it to Camille. Did you notice? I thought this was quite, uh, I felt some feels. 
we get a direct contrast in this episode with the previous one. In direct reference to Emma slapping Fa, as Fa is emotional after the fight and yelling at Camille, Emma's hand comes from off screen and strokes Fa's face. I think she brushes away some tears. When the hand first comes out, you're like, oh no, not again. <laughs> and then and then it's this soft, like a gentle, tender touch. And you can tell Fa is surprised too. <laughs> well, at one point, Fa just tells Camille, just slap me. Like, I've refused orders to retreat. Just hit me. Do it. Right. Like, why aren't you hitting me? That's what happens when I'm bad. Why aren't you hitting me? I don't want you to be nice because you pity me. I don't want you to be nice to me just right now because you're trying to console me. Put another coin in the Nina was right jar. <laughs> when Nina called it a few episodes back that what Fowler really wanted was more attention from Camille. She wanted affection from Camille, not just friendliness and not just consolation now. She wants the Camille that grabbed her and hugged her against a bulkhead when they were reunited. And that Camille hasn't been present since. We get some wonderful visuals with Fa during the combat. She begins panicked. She sees all of these beams, all of these shots whizzing past her. And then it, the camera turns around, so we're looking at her, and she appears to be at the center of a bunch of speed lines. They almost look like spears coming at her, and it's all red and white. And we can hear her breathing. Uh, we can hear the panic. And I feel very much like we've seen that specific composition before with other pilots. Hmm. It felt familiar. It felt familiar to me too, but what it reminded me of was actually just last episode, and it wasn't a visual thing, but something someone said. When Sarah mm, says, mm. I can feel all of the enemy's minds uniting and coming at me. And Camille senses that she's in trouble, and he comes and gets her free. She's in a grapple with another mobile suit, but she's the one who gets the killing shots on it. She shoots it twice. Camille doesn't just come and get her free. Camille does an Amaro and shoots the beam saber wielding hand off of the mobile suit that's coming at her. And in a disturbing sort of way, that first kill seems to give her a lot of confidence. And she gets a bit bloodlusty. She won't retreat at the end until they have to almost drag her back. In what might actually be a bit of foreshadowing for that change that comes over Fa during the battle, Haro returns to Camille in this episode. It's a brief scene. It doesn't seem to serve any kind of point, except that we've noticed that Haro's presence represents perhaps innocence or something like it. And so in previous episodes, it's seemed significant whether Haro was with Camille or not for certain key scenes. And when Camille went down to Earth, he left Haro with Fa. And then when he returned to space, Haro mostly stuck with Fa until now. I don't know if you noticed this, but when Camille goes into the hangar and sees Fa with Rekoa, right before, as he's coming into the room, there's a brief moment when on the wall behind his head, it just says Fa. I had not noticed that. A few small but significant things that we learn about Ayug in this episode. We talked briefly earlier about Everybody rushing into the hangar trying to grab a mobile suit and the cluster cuss that was. And at one point, Rekoa grabs Katz and tells him, we don't have any suits to spare. There is not one extra mobile suit. So they're strapped a bit. Ayug has more pilots than they have suits. And we get a sense that it's a problem. We get a sense that it's a, a pinch point. We learn that Ayug knows that the leaders of the Titans have something more in mind than simply the subjugation of spacenoids. 
Because Quattro mentions that the Commodore told him they would observe the face of their true enemy in this fight. Hmm. Which tells me they, they know about Sirocco and Hymem. They know that there is within the Titans either a split or perhaps a hierarchy, depending on who they think is receptive to the idea, but that the Titans are perhaps seeking a way to get all humans off of Earth, but through war. Perhaps. It could also be that they know the Titans are planning to use Operation Apollo, the capture of Von Braun, in order to exert truly overwhelming influence over the Earth Federation. After all, this operation has come right on the eve of the Earth Federation Government General Assembly. Finally, there is something very nostalgic? I don't know if that's the right word, but there, there's something emotional about the fact that here is this imagined future, right? And it's, it's science fiction, it's a fantasy, but it's meant to be an extension of our own world. It's an imagined future for us. And the first moon landing still looms so large that they built an entire city around where Captain Armstrong took his first steps on the moon, that it's enshrined. And the most important city on the moon is there. Well, it makes sense. From a universal century perspective, when most of humanity lives in space colonies orbiting the planet and basically all important human activity takes place in the Earth's sphere, that first landing on the moon is probably the most important single event in history. For research this week, Nina has a segment on Japanese religion, in particular, family shrines and teenagers, followed by my Gundam Names Roundup. I first have a quick aside. Uh, I mentioned in the talkback that I was very curious about the phrase, the birds will laugh at me. I attempted to do some research on this and only found two things sort of related. One is that in some translations of The Ugly Duckling, the titular Ugly Duckling is afraid to approach the swans towards the end of the story because they'll laugh at him. Uh, and the other is I found a bit of Chinese poetry that contains the line, I fear flowers and birds will laugh at me. But neither quite seem to fit this particular situation. Uh, I am tabling this one until I can do a little more research and consult my 93-year-old Japanese calligraphy teacher find out whether this is perhaps a Japanese idiom that I just couldn't find online. Uh, I will let you know if anything comes up. Built into the cubbies and shelves over his bed, Camille has a small shrine of some sort. The inside shines golden, and there's a glass of water inside. He opens it briefly while he and Emma are talking about religion the fact that he's not religious, and the fact that he thinks a lot about the people he's killed. I want to discuss two parts of this. The first is the religion question. What did Japanese young people of the 1980s think of religion? What was their religious participation like? And the second is to explain the cultural significance of the private or home shrine. For the religion question, I actually found a published sociological study called Japanese Youth Confronts Religion from the 1960s. There could certainly have been significant change 
between the 1960s and when Zeta was created, but it's the most detailed information I could find on the Japanese youth religious experience. The other weakness of the study is that its sample is exclusively at Tokyo universities, which means that it's entirely urban and college-educated and skews male. Luckily, we are analyzing Camille, an urban male with two college and possibly grad or PhD-level educated parents, which means that had he the opportunity, he would almost certainly also have gone to college. The sample for the study fits pretty well with our main character. Reading through the positive and negative perceptions of religion among this cohort, it's easy to see why Camille would both describe himself as not religious and still maintain a small shrine, which he associates with people he's killed and his own mortality. The study respondents expressed the following negative attitudes about religion. That it is unnecessary if someone is strong or confident. That it is for the weak or even makes people weak. That it's only necessary if you are dissatisfied, sad, unhealthy, hopeless, poor, or otherwise sufficiently suffering or afflicted. That it is only needed to address anxieties and cares of war or other periods of large-scale turbulence or disaster. That it is emotional, subjective, and personal. That it is an escape or evasion from reality, monastic. That it constitutes selfish escapism. That religion is in contradiction to science and reason. That it is inherently vague, contradictory, confusing, unclear, and unexplainable. And that it is for the weak, stupid, unambitious, or boring. So, some points in the Camille is not religious column. Camille is very concerned with being strong, and even more so with the appearance of strength. We also know that he questions things. Despite having had this tendency literally beaten out of him, his natural impulse is to ask questions when things don't make sense and to feel frustrated when he doesn't get real answers. We also know his hobbies and interests tended toward engineering and science. This list also contributes some points to the why does Camille have some religious practices column, though. The upheaval and anxieties of wartime warrant the comfort of religion. And one point that I'm not entirely sure about, there's the point about personal suffering. We saw Camille wrestle with very complicated feelings on the death of his parents, and in this episode Emma accuses him of feeling sorry for himself for being an orphan. Does Camille think that his own sadness, grief, and trauma are enough to make religion necessary in his life? Hmm. I don't know. Well, I suppose, as the survey respondents suggested, that would be a very personal kind of decision. Does he feel like he needs the comfort of religion? And it kind of seems like he does, or else he wouldn't be keeping the shrine and praying to or for or about the souls of those he's killed. The study respondents also expressed positive attitudes towards religion. These were that religion instills peace of mind, heart, and soul, that it is a balm to loneliness, emptiness, and isolation, that it can be an encouragement and a support, but one which competitive young people feel demonstrates weakness, that it gives meaning to life and clarifies the purpose of existence, that it dispels uneasiness about death and soothes anxiety, that it is a good way of instilling morality, discipline, and self-improvement, and that it promotes peace in the world. Camille could certainly use some peace of mind, heart, and soul. <laughs> and despite the improvement in his relationships with the crew, we have often perceived him to be lonely and isolated. In the scene where he cleans his room, he is preoccupied with death. Not just the deaths that he's caused, but the possibility of his own imminent death. 
He has also, on numerous occasions, expressed concern over the lasting effects of war, even when it's all over. He seems to think that it will have lasting negative impacts on everyone who has been touched by it, hence him clinging rather stubbornly to the idea that some part of humanity can and should be sheltered from the war. If he thinks in any way that religion could promote peace in the world, that would certainly cause him to participate, even if he's not sure he believes in it. You know, I hadn't thought about this until you were talking just now, but Camille cleaning his room is a kind of ritual purification, preparing himself for the possibility of death so that he can go into death leaving behind. He can leave his affairs in order. Yeah. In the event that he dies, all of his affairs will be in order. Both in a physical and in a spiritual sense. And this is not the first time we've seen something like this in Gundam. If you stretch your mind all the way back to First Gundam and the suicide attack led by Lady Haman, Rambaral's yep. lover, she also went through a self-purification ritual before launching that attack. And now we come to the shrine. There are two types of household shrine common in Japan, the kamidana and the butsudan. Kamidana means god or spirit shelf, and it is a shelf placed high on the wall of a home with the purpose of enshrining a Shinto kami. This kami is usually that of the local shrine or one associated with the homeowner's profession. The kamidana contains a number of significant objects, including a shintai, which is a, a physical object to house the kami and is usually a mirror, but can be other objects, a shimenawa, which is rope used for ritual purification, and shide, zigzag paper streamers used for purifications and blessings. Sometimes kamidana also contain ofuda, which is a kind of charm that can be purchased at many shrines and that has to be replaced annually. There are rules about where a kamidana can be placed. It must be above eye level and cannot be over a doorway or somewhere where people will be walking underneath it. Typical offerings at a kamidana include water, alcohol, rice, fruit, and flowers, and are supposed to be changed and refreshed regularly. The shape and location of Camille's shrine mean that it is not a kamidana, which means it is likely a butsudan. A butsudan is a Buddhist altar commonly found in Japanese homes. They vary in size and can be simple or ornate, but they are the shape of a small cabinet with doors that are usually shut and a religious icon of some sort contained inside. These icons can be small statues of the Buddha or of bodhisattvas, or small calligraphic scrolls of mandala or other inscriptions. When I mentioned that Butsudan can be ornate, that doesn't quite do it justice. <laughs> Despite being in people's homes, and Japanese homes are not usually very big, uh, they can be large, intricately carved, colorfully painted, gold-leafed, lacquered, really stunning. In a time before home electronics, the Butsudan was easily the most expensive item in the home, uh, which is to say they can very easily run thousands of dollars, with a few famous examples ranging in the hundreds of thousands. In front of the Butsudan, people often put offerings like water, tea, fruit, rice, flowers, candles, and evergreen fronds. I read a couple of examples where people would put the first rice of the day in front of the Butsudan. And when the Butsudan offerings were edible, people would eat them later, but you would offer them first at the Butsudan. They also put items used during prayer, like incense and bells. Depending on the sect of Buddhism practiced in the household, there may be small tablets engraved with the names of deceased family members, or pictures of those family members placed in or near the Butsudan as well. 
It is typically placed on top of another cabinet in the main living area of the home, although in past eras, there might have been a small room entirely devoted to the butsudan and at-home religious devotions. In addition to specific Buddhist prayers, people may also sit in front of the butsudan to have a conversation with a deceased loved one, much like a person whose religious practice involves burial might do the same at a gravesite. Butsudan are much more common in rural homes than in urban ones. A 2003 statistic states that 90% of rural homes have a butsudan, while less than 60% of urban homes do. I wouldn't necessarily credit this to a greater religious devotion or traditionalism so much as the fact that urban homes are small and butsudan can be quite large. Plus, when young people increasingly moved to cities in the post-war period, they typically did so without their extended family and probably left the family butsudan in the ancestral home. Which was out in rural Japan. We don't get a close look at the inside of Camille's little cabinet, so we can't see if there's any kind of statue or image at the back of it. All we see is the shining gold interior and the glass of water. It reminds me of an example I found, I will link in the show notes, of a contemporary designer's concept for smaller butsudan with a more modern and minimalist aesthetic. When you say contemporary, do you mean contemporary to now yes. or contemporary to Zeta? Contemporary to now. These are simple with few adornments and none of the ornate carving, gold, or lacquer of more traditional butsudan. They are approximately the size of a shoebox, instead of being the size of a small cabinet. The built-in shrine cubby seems like a retro-futurist version of that. Uh, living space is at a premium on a spaceship, after all, and there's nothing ornate about the interior design, the clothes, really anything in the Zetaverse except for some of what we've seen on Earth. A traditional butsudan would look like an anachronism. You can kind of picture one in Amaro's house, right. but not on the Argama. <laughs> Although Amaro's house is so westernized, perhaps not. He might have a separate room just with a giant picture of Matilda. <laughs> Similarly, in a seemingly irreligious future, we've mentioned before that the apparent secularism of the show makes the few religious symbols really stand out, they're unlikely to have the accoutrement, the bells, the incense, and so on, available. And it's hard to imagine Camille's parents having any kind of religious practice. So this must be something he picked up on his own. Incense and candles would be fire hazards that would be unacceptable on a <laughs> ship. There would be no source for flowers. Water would be one of the few offerings that you could make. I also read a paper about Butsudan and at-home religious practices of the Japanese diaspora, specifically Nisei, Sansei, and further generations in the United States. A quick vocab note. It's common in the United States to use the terms Issei, Nisei, Sansei, and so on. These just mean first generation, second generation, third generation, with first generation being those individuals who first left Japan to come to the United States. The author noted that younger generations who have a butsudan tend to adapt it to themselves, incorporating non-traditional offerings, symbols from other religious practices, Whatever keeps the object and religious practice relevant for them and part of their life. If Bright has a butsudan, you know it's a burger every day. <laughs> the first burger of the day. I mean, she mentioned a woman whose butsudan had some art of an angel next to it. She mentioned a different woman who had a very small butsudan, but it was really just for her cats that had passed away. You know, just all kinds of different adaptations that people have to it over time. Camille's family is an example of that same village-to-city movement I mentioned earlier, but on an Earth-sphere scale, right? 
He probably did not grow up with a butsudan, and if he did, it was probably not a big part of their family life. Yet he makes an offering. He looks to the little shrine as he contemplates life and death. That's a almost stunning amount of character depth for him from this brief couple of seconds interaction with Emma that a very substantial portion of the Zeta audience would not have understood. The more I think about this whole scene, the more I love it. It is time once again for us to talk about Gundam names. This recent run of episodes offers some straightforward ones and some trickier puzzles. So let's get started by stretching our memories all the way back to episode 16, when Amuro and Camille collaborated to kill Titan's major and pilot of the Ashimar, Buran Blutark. In the Japanese, his name is Buran Burutaku, so Buran Blutark is a pretty good translation. One of our listeners, Jeff, emailed us back when we were covering the Blutark arc, aka the Blutark, ha. to point out that Buran is the Russian word for a wind that blows in from the northeast and tends to kick up blizzards and sandstorms. That's already pretty good, because as we're going to cover in another episode, Major Blutark is not the only antagonist in Zeta Gundam to be named after the wind. But even better, Buran was the name for the Soviet Union's program to develop a reusable space shuttle. Buran was also the name given to the product of the Buran project, the Buran OK-1K-1 orbiter, which used a shuttle booster, remember those, called the Energia to enter space, just like the United States' space shuttles. In fact, you might say that everything about the Buran orbiter was suspiciously similar to the American space shuttles, and that's because much of the scientific and engineering groundwork for the Buran program was based on documents that were, let's just say, obtained by the KGB from American research institutions. The Buran orbiter conducted one spaceflight, totally unmanned, in 1988. It performed impressively, leading to endless speculation then and now about whether the Buran was a better shuttle. But that was all for naught when the Soviet Union collapsed and funding for the Buran program evaporated. The program, which had begun way back in 1974, was cancelled in 1993, and the Buran orbiter was left to rot in a hangar at Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. A little under a decade later, in 2002, the ceiling of that hangar collapsed and destroyed the Buran. While the Soviet Buran program was quite hush-hush, they couldn't really hide the repeated test flights conducted using miniature-scale models of the Buran in the early 1980s, so for space enthusiasts like the Gundam team, the Buran program would have been known but intriguingly mysterious. As for Blutark, or Burutaku, it immediately makes me think of the first-century common-era Greek historian who we call Plutarch in English. Plutarch took a loose approach to his historical works, generally being more interested in using the biographies of famous men in order to make points about morality. But even so, his surviving works remain some of our best sources for the lives of people like Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. His almost certainly fabricated stories about ancient Sparta are responsible for much of the modern myth of Sparta, and gave us the famous, come back with your shield, or on it, saying. And he is also a major source for Roman-era Egyptian religion. The Pu and Bu sounds are closely related in Japanese, so it would be only a very small leap to go from Purutaku to Burutaku. 
The stumbling block for all of this is that while Purutaku is the Japanese way of saying Plutarch, the man's actual name was more like Plutaros or Plutarchos in the ancient Greek. And the standard Japanese way of saying it is actually closer to that, Purutaru Kosu. Still, it's not impossible that Plutarch is a Gundamized version of Plutarch, especially when you consider Zeta's evident fascination with classical-era Mediterranean history, myth, and language. After all, even the name Zeta comes from the Greek alphabet. If you needed further proof of that Mediterranean focus, look no further than the Argama comms officer, whose name is dropped for the first time in this episode, Caesar. Ha. That name derives from the name of that famous Roman statesman, general, dictator, and knife storage receptacle, Julius Caesar. Then there is the Titan's ace, Moar, who first appeared way back during the evacuation from Jaburo when she saved Jared's life for the first time. Although it hasn't been mentioned on the show, her canonical last name is Pharaoh, taken from the title given to the half-monarch, half-high priest rulers of ancient Egypt, from around 1200 BCE until the annexation of Egypt into the Roman Empire in 30 BCE. But pointing out that the Pharaoh in Moar's name comes from the word Pharaoh doesn't answer the really interesting question, which is, why is her name Pharaoh? It also doesn't give us much to go on for her first name. As far as we know, there never was a pharaoh named Moar or anything like it. Moar in the Japanese is Mawa, which could have been lifted directly from nearly identical place names in Kenya, Mozambique, and Brazil, or the common name of a Hawaiian tree, or the scientific name for an Indonesian cicada. But I don't really think any of those have any kind of connection to Moar or to Gundam, so I don't buy it. With a small amount of distortion, it could come from the moa, an extinct flightless bird of New Zealand. Or, and this is my theory, from a breed of domesticated cat called the Egyptian Mao. But to explain how you get from a cat to moar or mawa pharaoh, I need to lay out my theory for why she's called pharaoh in the first place, and I'm going to start with visual design. Like a lot of the Titans women who have been introduced in the last 10 or so episodes, Moa has striking features, especially the unnatural green of her hair, the bright red of her lipstick, and her bright blue, as Nina put it, narrow scheming eyes. She also has a fairly small, slightly upturned nose, and a pointed V-shaped chin. And then of course there's her hairstyle. Shoulder length, kind of stringy, with choppy bangs that part naturally in the middle of her forehead. There's clearly been some disagreement among the artists about how exactly these bangs should look. <laughs> so in some scenes, the strands of hair on either side of the part reach all the way down past her eyes, and in others, they are only slightly longer than the rest of her fringe. Now, let's compare that to the most famous modern depiction of a pharaoh, Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra in the 1963 Hollywood mega-hit of the same name. The facial features I've just been describing are pretty much all there, although Cleopatra's hair is black rather than green, and in most scenes, her bangs are straight across. They do appear choppy like Moar's in a couple scenes, though, and we know that Slager Law was supposed to look like Sylvester Stallone from Rocky. We've seen that Lieutenant Matilda's designs derived from the look of Takarazuka heroines. It's not much of a stretch to imagine that Moar Pharaoh took her looks and her name from a landmark movie that was then only two decades old. 
In a fun coincidence, the story of the movie Cleopatra was largely based on the version of her life that was recounted to us by Plutarch. Not entirely related to Tom's notes, but something I've noticed watching anime. We've talked before about the the anime eye, right? The big, round, very expressive eyes, mostly given to main characters because they are difficult to animate and take a lot more effort, and so you use them sparingly. Mm-hmm. However, I've also noticed in a lot of Japanese animation, women, like grown women, do not have these big, innocent ingenue eyes. They have a much narrower eye. And so I think it's very likely also a visual shorthand to symbolize maturity. And in Moar's case, we know that she's deeply suspicious of Sirocco and his motives, and it does make her face look constantly suspicious. This is also part of sort of a broader stylistic trend uh, in anime, in how they draw women and what they want us to know about those women from the way that they are drawn. The only part of Moar's design that doesn't quite fit with Liz Taylor's Cleopatra is that huge part in her bangs. Specifically, where Moar's bangs part, at first they spread, but then her hair curves back inward, and it forms a kind of rough oval right in the center of her forehead. It's very distinctive. No one else in the show has hair like that. So let's go back to that cat breed, the Egyptian Mao. Besides the very similar name, Maua versus Mao, and the Egypt pharaoh connection, Maos are also noted for the particular markings which they have on their foreheads. Usually described as being either M-shaped or scarab-shaped, these are patches of darker colored fur in the shape of a rough oval, right in the center of their foreheads. This is all conjecture, I admit that, and it might seem like a bit of a stretch, but I start from the assumption that these names are not being picked at random, and they aren't usually created just by mashing syllables together. The thinking behind a particular name might not be particularly profound. In fact, it might just be that the writer heard a word and liked the sound of it, but when the coincidences start piling up like they did for Moar, it's hard not to see connections. After all, is it really so unlikely that Tomino and company would design a character based on one of the most famous beauties of their age in one of her most iconic roles? And then add their own unique touch by mixing in a bit of detail and the name from a kind of very pretty cat that they liked. <laughs> like I said, it's not always going to be profound. But if speculation and visual references aren't your cup of fresh-from-the-vending-machine tea, I'll finish with a more straightforward one. Titan's new type candidate and only person to ever follow Jared's orders, Siddeley, was probably named after British manufacturing magnate John Siddeley, or one of the many car and airplane manufacturing companies that bore his name at one point or another. John Siddeley himself ran the Siddeley companies during World War I. The company manufactured engines for aircraft, ambulances, and even tanks. After he retired in the 30s, through the never-ending churn of corporate acquisition and reorganization, the Siddeley name has been kicking around attached to various different companies ever since. In the late 1960s, aircraft manufacturer Hawker Siddeley developed the famous Harrier Jump Jet, a fighter jet capable of vertical takeoff and landing that saw real action in the 1982 Falklands War, just before Zeta Gundam's creation. We have seen over and over again that someone on Zeta's staff was a fan of real-world aircraft. They cannot possibly have missed the high-tech and high-concept Hawker Sidley Harrier. 
Now, as far as I know, Siddeley doesn't have a canon last name, but let's just say that I wouldn't be surprised if it was Hawker. Next time, a very special Q&A episode. That's right, listeners. Next time, we take a brief detour away from Zeta to answer some of the questions you submitted. After that, we will have our forum episode, and then it will be back to Zeta as usual. You will see the tears of time in three weeks. Hey, before the regular credits, I have some special thank yous and acknowledgements. Thank you again to Jeff for emailing us about the name Buran. Thank you to Serperoth on the MSB Discord for coaching me in the modern Greek pronunciation of, I'll just let him say it, Plutarchos. Thank you to everyone who has shared pictures of your founding patron certificates and pins. We absolutely love to see them. And finally, the music playing during the advertisement for the teen-friendly Marasai was Drops of H2O by Jay Lang. Links and more are in the show notes. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Build Fighters is the most dystopian Gundam series ever created, on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from me. That's my opinion. You can yell at me on Twitter about it if you want. <laughs> but not in New York. We, we won't really hear you. Nina, don't destroy the illusion. We hear all and see all. Mobile Suit Panopticon. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. And the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Hello, listeners. If you can hear drumming, cheering, and or helicopters in the background of this week's talkback, uh, we do not have a live studio audience. We just happen to be on the route for the New York City Marathon. So the marathon is happening right outside this office, literally 10 feet away. New York or New York? The New York City Marathon. When I say it fast, it sounds the same. New York City Marathon. Welcome back to Mobile Suit Breakdown. Welcome back to the historic Mobile Suit Breakdown Theater in scenic downtown New York, in the heart of scenic New York City. Someday there will be a little placard outside our building. (laughs) Long-running podcast, Mobile Suit Breakdown, was recorded here. (laughs) Not because he didn't want to hear me talk. (laughs) 
Not in the way he might like. <laughs> no, you can cut that. That's lewd. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. I I know. I don't know if they do. I was gonna. I was gonna say. actually get to that later. Oh, oh, do you? Yes. I'm sorry for anticipating. It's quite all right. Oh, I don't know that I have one. Mm. All of my Gundam opinions are so good. Mm. Did you notice that when Bright tells Emma that the radish is coming, she stammers? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, re it's really clear in the Japanese. It's not so clear in the English. I had to go back and watch the dub as well, just to confirm. Ha and they don't really do it with the animation either. It's That's all on the voice actor. <laughs> uh, cool. Can't wait, to, can't wait to see what the radish sent us this time. <laughs> Is it more presents I don't want? <laughs> is it is it the guy who sent the presents? Is is it him but in a present? Ah. We never did see what was in that box. No, we did not. We don't even know if she opened it. It's probably snakes. <laughs> why why snakes? Yeah. I was going to speculate that at least it's too big to be a ring box. Maybe he has unrealistic ideas about how big her hands are. <laughs> Can you imagine a snake in zero gravity though? Just like wriggling back and forth and going nowhere. I feel bad for a snake in zero gravity. Yeah. Like most, I feel like most creatures other than a snake would do better than a snake. But maybe the, I bet like sea snakes though would be okay. Oh, now I'm terrified. Ha 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 ha. Ship full of sea snakes. <laughs> oh God. Snakes on a space plane. <laughs> I'm stopping it. I'm cutting you off. 